I have uh, yet a, a privilege again to introduce another one of our, our youth that has decided to walk this path of a uh, bat mitzvah or a daughter of the commandment. And it's, uh, it is a privilege for all of us as a congregation and for the visitors and family to really witness this and to see Addie sort of begin this commitment to God that already began years ago. Um, you can see in her heart as she grows, gotten older that she's, that, that her faith and her love for God is very evident. Um, but it's interesting, it's uh, the first time that Jason mentioned that, uh, not to talk Jason or anything like that, but the first time that we actually had the yad and the strap fall off the bima, uh, after off the Torah, and it, uh, I sort of forgot what we did last night, but it sparked my memory, um, and I wanted to go over a little bit of, for those who don't know, what, you know, what a bar, or bar mitzvah is, and where it stands within a baptism versus salvation, and where how all, the, all that sort of encompasses one's walk with God. So, yeah, as Rabbi mentioned before, you know, the, the bat mitzvah process starts years when they're young and kids standing in front of the Torah table. That's when the process begins, um, 12, 10 years before they're, you know, 12 or 13. And it really sort of integrates, the reason why we do that, it really sort of stirs in the hearts of, of being in front of this, this table that holds this special scroll that has very special words in it um, that they don't see but that they see us lift us up every week and they see us read from it every single week and they know there's something important there and they hear the words and hopefully their words are good and, and true and, and they, 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 the words seem to resonate with them and sort of seed in their hearts and uh, you, know, they write, you know, the wording in front of the Torah table is which is know before whom you stand and every week they come up here hopefully understanding and learning that in order to come to God you have to know before whom you stand you have to have faith, you have to have a humbleness of heart, contrite heart and that's really where faith and, and to, to come to God really takes is that decrease of yourself and increase of God's, you know, of God's king over you. Um, so that's really where it starts. And then eventually, as Addie did today, they make that, that leap. Uh, they make that cross over to the other side, and now they read from the Torah. And she actually reads the, you know, the Torah for the first time in front of the congregation. Um, but the interesting thing is for a bat mitzvah and a bar mitzvah, and as you'll see today, the Adi sort of has three components to this. Uh, one is reading out the Torah. Another is sort of, they ha she does an overview of, of the, this week's readings or devotional uh, that you'd all sort of, from the church, would recognize a, a weekly devotional that, that she sort of studies and that she comes up here and she brings before you all. And then she has a speech or a testimony of sort of her journey throughout the process. And the reason why she goes through those three things is, is not just for, you know, happenstance just because we think it's a great thing to do. Um, but first and foremost, the most important thing, you know, once we become believers in Yeshua, we become baptized, you know, that's the refining process begins, and that begins the process refining comes from his word, his Torah, his commandments. And that is the epitome of the importance of, of God and his commandments, of his, his gospel, of his truth. And so her reading from this is, she's been hearing it for years, now she's actually reading from it. You know, she's not just receiving the instruction, She's learning it and giving the instruction. And it's a totally different thing. And those who, who know psychology, teaching something, uh, you remember and you retain that information, you know, I don't forget what it is, like three or four times greater than actually hearing it and uh, writing it down. Um, so she's learning the Torah, she's learning the commandments, she's learning the language and coming up, up in here and understanding how important it is to know this Torah that she started watching when she was just two, three, you know, a year old. Uh, the second part of it is the review or the overview of the readings. Again, learning how to study the Bible, get into it, research. Um, really just not just reading just to say, hey, make sure you read your Bible for 15 minutes today. 
you know, every day. You know, she's taking her time. She's slowing down. She actually, you know, sort of absorbing the words. She's just not reading it to read it. She's actually reading to study it, to learn it. And hopefully those seeds get planted. And she's reading it enough that she can, as we're gonna, she's going to do today, she can teach. And she can, you know, help all of us learn, you know, another aspect of God's, God's truth in his, his Torah's commandments. And it just teaches her that, that aspect of, of study again, but also being able, be able to come up here and in front of everybody and to teach, because we all know that how are people in the world going to hear if they don't have somebody that speaks the truth? Um, you know, there's you know, fields are white in the world, and labors are few, and it's very important for, for Addie and all of us and all the youth to understand that they have a huge role in this world. It's not, it's, it's not normal just to live up, grow old, and that's it. But they have, they're pivotal to stand in the gap of, of the missing of the truth, God's commandments in this world today. And to be up here and to speak that truth, she becomes a herald to proclaim that, that gospel of truth. And so she's learning that today. And that's why we do this. And then the last part is the testimony. And that's just sort of giving her journey, uh, being able for her to open up and be able to understand and bring that, that personal um, experience with God and be able to, to exhort, encourage, challenge you know, us as a congregation. Because no matter how old or young we become, um, we all need a reminder of how awesome God is. We forget the miracles. We forget the, in challenges uh, how, how miraculous God can be. Um, in our good times, we sometimes get relaxed. So it's, it's good to have a reminder, no matter how, where we are, um, of God's commandments and what he can do for us. So that's sort of the epitome of, of sort of a bomb. So what it's, again, to emphasize, not to talk too long, I always do this, but um, the bomb so really is different because obviously salvation is a free gift. We all know that. Um, in, in Yeshua. There's, it does, there's nothing we can do to get, to get the gift of everlasting life through the blood of Jesus through Yeshua. Um, it's a free gift. There's nothing we can do. It's, it's a gift to us. He gave his life for us freely. Um, the baptism is the way I, 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 I sort of put it with the youth is that you could look at is, okay, you have your faith, but if you don't have works or action to back up that faith, it means nothing. There's no, there's no fruit from that. And I almost put baptism as like, that's your first gift back to God, right? God gave your life for you. You then commit your life to God. And that baptism is that, that shedding of the old, bringing into the new, a new creature, a new creation rising up and being part of God's kingdom. And that is the baptism. You say that God gave a free gift to you. You honor him with a free gift back of your life for him. And then the bat mitzvah, the bar mitzvah, is, is really that day-to-day -day commitment that you are walking out this faith daily and you are living your life for God, no matter what happens, you are living righteously and holy, do the good times and bad, that this world will see a light, and that, and be drawn to that light, and hopefully, hopefully come to know that free gift that, you know, we all received in the past. Um, so that's sort of where the bar, the bat mitzvah, bar mitzvah lies in the sort of the role of, of salvation, baptism, to the uh, bar bat mitzvah. Um, so... I think I'm gonna. I think I've talked too much up here. But again, just to finish it off, um, the Torah dropping it reminded me of of for you, Addy, and what we went through last night. So I incorporated a new new thing for the Torah readings. And before we rehearse, we rehearsed the Saturday before. So we open open up the Torah scroll. I put the little parchment in her. It has the Hebrew in the Torah, and I leave it up to now to the Bar Bat Mitzvah to find that that portion, that reading, in the Torah scroll itself. And for those who don't know, the, the actual parchment and the Torah are two totally, it's the same thing, but they don't have the vowels, it's, it's a little different, it's harder to find. And I, I do that from now on, they, that they have to find, that begins the process. If they don't, if it takes an hour to find their reading in the Torah scroll, then it takes an hour. If it takes five minutes, it takes five minutes. 
Uh, but I do that now, and, and really it's to teach the bar bat mitzvah, and, and you, Addie, and I talked to Addie about this yesterday. It's no matter how hard, no matter how long, um, when God is in your life and, and your heart is for God, 70 times 70, I mean, you, no matter how long it takes, you're willing to put in the effort, the sacrifice to get there. And to seek, you will find. And it really sort of like I did with that Addie yesterday, and, and really it, it, it took, took her not too long, about 20 minutes or 15, 20 minutes. But she stuck with it. And you tell us, like, oh, my gosh. And she got frustrated a little bit, and then she's trying to find it. But she ended up finding it. And, um, and this for her, it's, you know, it's the, the sort of the, the process of, you know, if you seek it, you'll find it. Um, if it's special to you, you will, you know, God is, God is there, and he's given you the treasures of the world. It's you to, to take hold of it and to find it. And not to give up. And when it gets frustrating, not to, you know, to throw it aside, but to keep pushing forward, keep persevering. And seeking God because, you know, he's overall and he's your, he's your God and he's your king. And, and hopefully that the tour in, in this life is a treasure to you. And so just as you found it last night, as you traverse this life um, going forward and as you begin your walk of a, a daughter of the commandment, I encourage you, just definitely, if you did the Torah, keep reading, keep searching. Don't quit. Don't stop. If you don't understand something, keep seeking and keep seeking, keep finding. And, uh, and, you'll, and you'll get there. God will guide you through that path. So, hope that makes sense a little bit. So, all right. So, enough of me. Addie, it's your time, so come on up. This week's Parsha is called Korah. It is about the uprising of Korah and 250 leaders of the congregation. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. We are all in, we are, we are, we all are holy in the congregation, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why do you exalt yourself above the congregation of the Lord? When Moses heard this, he fell on his face and said to Korah and the others, in the morning the Lord will show you who belongs to him, who is holy and will bring them near to him. Moses then tells Korah and all his company to take censers and put fire in them and incense. The offering that God chooses is holy. God then warns them that is, is them who have gone too far. Moses reminds them that God has separated them from the rest of the congregation and brought them near to him to do his work in the tabernacle and warns them that it is against the Lord that they are complaining. Moses calls for Dathan and Abirim, but they are angry and say, we will not come. Isn't it enough? Isn't it enough that you have brought us up out of the land of flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness. Then Moses became angry and tells the Lord not to accept their offering. Moses told Korah and his followers to bring their centers before the Lord. Korah and his followers stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Aaron and Moses. God's presence showed up 
And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourself from among this congregation, that I might consume them in a moment. And Moses and Aaron fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and you be angry with the whole congregation? God tells Moses to separate the congregation from Dathan, Korah, and Abraham. Then Moses warns the people, depart please from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs lest you be swept away with their sins. This, they followed Moses' instructions. Moses says, if these men die as all men die, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new and opens and the earth opens and swallows them alive with all their belongings, then you know that they have despised the Lord. As soon as Moses sp finished speaking, the earth opened and swallowed them alive, included their families and all their belongings. The rest of the 250 men started running and crying, and fire came out of the Lord and consumed them. The Lord has Aaron's son, Eleazar, hammer the censers from the men who were burned up into a covering for the altar to remind the congregation that no one outside of Aaron's family should burn incense before the Lord. The next day, the people of Israel were angry and turned against Moses and Aaron that, and thought they have killed their own people. The Lord was very angry and wanted to kill them all. The Lord began a plague among them. Moses and Aaron stood up again for the people of Israel by having Aaron burn incense to make atonement and the plague was stopped. In all, 14,700 people died from the plague who complained against the Lord. In the next chapter of Numbers, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, get a staff from the leader of each tribe and write his name on the staff. Then place them in the tent of meeting where I meet, where I meet with you. And the staff from the man I choose shall brout, and doing so I will stop the grumblings of the people against you. The next day Moses went to the tent and, and the staff of Aaron had sprouted. Not only that, but bl produced blossoms and had ripe almonds. Then Moses brought the staffs before the people to show them. Each man took their own staff, but the staff of Aaron God said to keep aside for a sign that the rebels that you may make an end to their grumblings against me or they will die. In chapter 18 the num of Numbers, the Lord puts Aaron and his sons in charge of the sanctuary, its service, and shall guard all aspects of the priesthood. The Lord spoke, Behold, I have given you charge of the contributions made to me. God tells Aaron that the best that the best of all offerings brought to me, to God, I am giving you as a payment. God promises to provide for Aaron and his whole family. 
Ending the Torah portion, God gives instructions to the Levites, rules that they should live by. This half Torah portion comes from 1 Samuel chapters 11 through 12. The people of Israel go up to Gugal and make Saul their king. Samuel said to Israel, I have obeyed your voice and have made a king over you. Then he then seeks to find another, anyone that he has wronged or stolen from. The people responded, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us. Samuel says to the people of the Lord, his witness, I may tell you the righteous deeds of the Lord our God. Samuel then recounts in detail all that the Lord did for the people from the time Jacob went to Egypt until now. All the times God delivered them from their enemies and now God has protected, always protected them. So even though the people have sinned and chosen a king, God did not want as long as they, their king obeys God and his commandments, he will bless them. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it is, it has plated the Lord to make you a people for himself. The Brit Kadashah portion of the New Testament comes from 2 Timothy chapters 3 through 4. Scripture 3 tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable by teaching, for teaching, for reproof, and for correction, and for training in, in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In chapter four, Paul warns the people to always be ready to preach the word, to, to stop doing bad things, and to encourage with complete passion, passion and teaching. For the time is coming that people will turn away from the God's truth. This Brit Kadashah ends with Paul encouraging people to fight a good fight, to keep the faith, and if we do, God will bless us. This week's Tehillim portion comes from Psalms 5.1 to the choir master for the flutes, a Psalms of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning, Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delight, delays, delights in wickedness. Evil may not duel with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who, speaks, who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. 
I will bow down toward your temple in fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight for me. For there is no truth in their mouth. There is, there are in most self-destruction. Their, their throat is open grave. Their, they flatter with their tongue. Make them bear with guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own consuls because of their abundance of transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let who take refuge in your rejoice, let them ever sing for joy. And spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt you. For you bless the righteousness, O Lord, you cover him with favor as with a shield. The reason I did my bat mitzvah was because I wanted to further dedicate my life to Yeshua. And I feel like it's important for kids my age to realize that God will always be there when you're going through tough times. For example, my Torah reading was mainly about how God was always there for his people, no matter what they said or did, as long as they continue to follow him. Another example, example is in 1 Kings 8.57, which reads, May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our ancestors, and may he never leave us or nurse forsake us. On our first day of bat mitzvah class, I had to write a speech on why I wanted to have a bat mitzvah. I said that I wanted to dedicate myself to God and understand him in a different way, and I, I have. The first time I had classes with Joel and Kathy, I was so nervous that I thought I wasn't good enough to do it but now I'm ready more than ever because this journey has given me the opportunity to think about what God has done for me and my family. As I have been learning about my faith, I had the chance to sing with the worship team on Shavuot. I felt the presence of God and started crying. It felt amazing. I did my picture holders as my Zadaka project. Another part of my project was volunteering at Feed My Starving Children. I had a lot of fun there, and I think it's important for people to care for kids all the way across the world that don't have something to eat. I also spent a week at Safety Town where little kids learn how to be safe everywhere they go. I want to say thank you for all the people that have helped me on this journey. First, I want to thank my grandparents for believing in God and setting my parents on this path so that they can do the same with me and my sisters. Because without them, I didn't know where I would be today. I also want to thank my parents for guiding me on this path and bringing me closer to Yeshua. I 
want to thank Kathy for spending all this time working with me to make sure I didn't mess up my Hebrew. I want to thank Joel for teaching me, letting me ask questions that might never be answered, and helping me understand this, what this journey means, and that there is a, a lot more to learn. I want to thank Rabbi and Ima for following God's leading and starting this congregation and with their help guiding me on this path. Last of all, I want to thank all my friends for going on this journey with me. It was a blast, so thank you. There's two parts to this bat mitzvah being used witness. The first part, I get the honor and privilege to present the second part in the most important. Rabbi mentioned it, showed me reference to it, Eddie made reference to it as well. And that's Eddie's decision to do her mikvah, her baptism into faith into Yeshua. I'm gonna share a few verses, three verses from Paul to kind of explain why this is important. It says in uh, chapter three, verse 21, God has shown us a way to be made right with him outside of the law, as was promised in Moses and the prophets. For everyone has sinned and we all have come short of the glory of God. He goes on in the chapter that says that God presented Yeshua, Jesus, as a sacrifice for sin. And people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Our acquittal is not based on obeying the commandments. The bat mitzvah for Eddie over the last four months, three, four months studying to become what? A daughter of the commandments. It's important. It is required, part of this family, both ours and of Rosh Pina. Uh, the second half is not required. And we've left it open to her. We've guided her and led her on this path. But our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is, a based, it is based upon faith, okay? What most people don't read through at the end of chapter 3 in Paul's letter to the Romans is the last verse. Maybe they miss it. Maybe they don't understand what it means. Paul says this. Well, then, if we emphasize faith, does this mean that we can forget about the law? Question mark. Of course not. Exclamation point. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. The whole point of her doing the bat mitzvah is to come to the point of a recognition that Yeshua is her Savior. So today after service, Eddie will do her mikvah. 
she'll be baptized in her faith into Yeshua. What you've seen is her commitment to the commandments and the law. Now comes the graduation of that, the most important part of that, is her belief and faith in God. Our following the commandments means nothing without the faith in Yeshua. Her bat mitzvah in the last four months and all of this process and the partying, the planning means nothing if she didn't have faith in Yeshua. So today we're not celebrating her bat mitzvah. We're celebrating someone who everyone in this room, unless you're a visitor, welcome. Everyone in this room has had a hand in leading Addie to her faith and her outward expression with God. Paul, I'll end with this. Paul says this in, I think, chapter 10. If you openly declare that Yeshua is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. It is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. Everyone that calls on the name will be saved. Her outward expression of her faith is her, is her mikvah, is her baptism. That's what we're celebrating today. She'll do it later with me and Melissa and Rabbi Nima. And that's what we're celebrating today more than anything else is her commitment to that. It's gone generations in the making from her grandparents to my sister and I to meeting Melissa, her family, to our kids. This has been generations and decades in the making. I was good. <laughs> if I do nothing in my life, believe my kids to God. I've been successful. That's it. Shabbat shalom, everyone. When I sat down last night, knowing that there was a bat mitzvah going on, and thinking, well, how am I going to tie that into the teaching that comes out of this week's um, parasha or Torah cycle, Torah portion reading? Considering what the parasha covers this week, I was like, well, that's going to be a tough stretch. So I just decided I'm not going to try to connect them. And with what Joel shared, with what Addie shared, with what Jason has, there's no reason to connect. So they, they, they did a great job um, explaining the bat mitzvah, the importance of it. And um, so we're going to jump in to looking at a, a teaching that, can't, like I said, came out, comes out of the events that we read about in, in the Torah portion this week. And I would argue that what Korah's rebellion represents, it actually represents, it illustrates one of the most persistent problems that have plagued the people of God, not just over the centuries, but really over the millennia, since going all the way back to when God first called out Avraham. 
It's been an issue at times for Israel. It's been an issue many times for the Jews, especially in the diaspora. It's a problem that plagues Christianity and, and every, every one of its denominations. And sadly, as a Messianic Jew, I have to say it's one that's actually very problematic for Messianic Jews. And that issue that I'm referring to, and again what Korah's Rebellion illustrates, is the lack of respect for properly appointed authorities in the assembly of, of believers. And that, that lack of respect ultimately then results in confusion. And I'll go so far as to say, and I'll walk, it through, walk all of us through it this morning, that it results in a babble of words and doctrines across members of single communities of believers. It results in babble among, between the different communities of believers. And it also results in babble between believers as a whole and the world, and finally it even creates babble among believers who belong to no communities. Now as I said, this is not a new problem for those who identify as the disciples of the Mashiach, as people who follow after the one true God. Even as early as the first generation of those following the death and resurrection of the Messiah, there were vicious disagreements and, and personal attacks against each other about those arguing, what, what, what is the meaning of Yeshua's teachings? What is the application of Yeshua's instructions? Anyone who takes the time to read Paul's letters to the communities at Corinth or Galatia, they see that he's constantly having to address disagreements and contention that existed among the believers of that age. Paul has to address, you know, there's those of you who say, well, you're a follower of me, or then there's other of you that say, well, I follow Peter, and others say, I follow Apollos, and whatever other leaders were emerging at that time. In addition to these internal conflicts, you also read from other letters in the New Testament, other books about how there was, there was the problem of false teachers and false leaders rising up in the community of believers. They're very short. Take the time to read 2 Peter, especially chapter 2. Read the book of Jude. It's only one chapter. Like I said, it's easy to read. And you see that even in that first generation, they were having to deal with the problem of false authorities, false teachers, people who would join themselves to the assembly of the believers, but then would speak and teach a false gospel. And they would teach a false message that would appeal to people. How? By appealing to their lusts. They would attract the people who would listen to them, who wanted that, to hear that message, saying, yeah, follow God, but it's okay in doing so that you continue to pursue your lusts, whether that be a lust for greed, a lust for fleshly pleasures, whatever it might be, you would have this creep in. Now, ultimately, the lack of respect with authority and the lack of discernment of where that authority truly rests, I'll say that ultimately it can be placed at the feet of many who have held positions of authority throughout time. It's very easy to point to centuries of failures by overseers, teachers, shepherds within Christianity to remain in sound doctrine, to protect and instruct those that were entrusted under them, and to live lives beyond reproach. 
Sadly, the abuses by those who hold titles given to them, whether it be by the Catholic Church, by Protestant denominations, or even just by a local church's group of elders, those, those violations, those atrocities, that abuse of power is beyond number. And the result of this corruption is that the sheep have become distrustful and at times outright rebellious against all authority as they've lost the ability to discern between those who truly have been appointed by God and who will walk according to God's word and those appointed by God who have strayed from the path of righteousness and also those who were never appointed by God. They were appointed by men to lead human institutions, but that still use the banner of God, whether it be for historical reasons or simply for their own benefit. And I don't want to gloss over these failures of authorities to remain faithful to the true faith or to live the servant roles to which they were ultimately called. But this morning's teacher is for the broader audience. It includes the sheep, but it's really more focused on the shepherds. It includes the shepherds, but it's really more focused on the sheep. And that is the importance of the sheep to be respectful of the authorities that are placed above them and the ultimate consequences that come when you fail to do so. I'm going to start this by looking at the actions of two different men in the Torah and contrast how they responded to authority and specifically responded to people who were appointed by God into positions of authority. Now the first example and the one that we should seek to emulate is of course that of Avraham. And in many, in almost always, we should always seek to emulate Avraham. But we read about how even this man, called out by God, respected the authority of others. Genesis 14, 18 through 20 says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of God, of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Avram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tithe of all. So the he mentioned here is Avraham. <clears throat> and we're all familiar with Avraham's st status before God. He's the one that's called out from all the nations by God to establish a covenant and a line from which the Mashiach himself would, would, would eventually come forth. Abraham's the man whom God said he would curse those who curse him and he would bless those who bless him. He's the individual that God considered to be his friend. If I remember right, I remember, I think I've looked at this before, the only person in the Torah, in the, in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, to be, called God, to be called God's friend. And that's due to the close, close relationship that God had with him, and that God would reveal his, his thoughts regarding judgment and, and about mercy on the innocent. Yet despite Avraham's standing with God, here in this instance in four, chapter 14 of Genesis, we see him giving a tenth of all his spoils from war to this man named Melchizedek, a man who seems just to come out of nowhere. As Hebrews 7, 1 four, through 4 describes him, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Avraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Avraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, 
without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch, Avraham, gave a tenth of the spoils. So Melchizedek, he, he is, in essence, he kind of steps out of history. We don't know where he comes from. We don't know his origins. We don't know what happens to him. We're actually just given three verses in Genesis. And then nothing else is said in the entire Tanakh about him except a passing reference of his priesthood in the 110th Psalm. Yet this man, when Abraham encounters, uh, encounters him, Abraham, again, the founding father of faith, he submits to this man Melchizedek. And he acknowledges his authority as the priest of God by, pay the, by paying him a tithe. And while it's certainly possible Avraham and Melchizedek knew each other more than what the Torah tells us, it's equally possible that this was the only time the two of them ever interacted. We simply don't know. But regardless, Avraham, in his obedient faith to God, gives what is due to the priest of God because of the anointed position. He recognizes that despite my unique standing with God and the relationship I have with him and how close I am to him, Here's this other man that also has a relationship with God, different than the relationship that I have with him, but that there is an authority that God has put on that man, and I, have to, I need to recognize that authority. We don't see Abraham attempting to assert his own standing. He doesn't attempt to acclaim a position of equality to that authority that, that God had put into Melchizedek. Instead, he acts according to his faith in God. Even, the case, even in this case, of respecting the authority God has placed in that other person. Now, in contrast to this example of Avraham, we have the case from the Parashah, the readings this week, and that being of Korah. Addy read it, but I, we want to, I want you to, to read it again so you hear it all again. Number 16, 1 through 3 says, Now Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Avram, the sons of Elav, and On, the son of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourself, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So in contrast to Avraham, Korah challenges the authority of Moses and Aaron. And think about Aaron, you know, the high priest of God. Korah was unsatisfied with his own appointment. Because we have to remember, Korah is a Levite. And he was given responsibilities by God. He was assigned tasks to carry out. He had a role to play in serving in the tabernacle. But instead of being satisfied with that and then acknowledging the other and different authorities that God had placed in, in other people, Korah sought to bring down Moses and Aaron and to make all of Israel, or at least the leaders from the various tribes, equal in the responsibilities that they had before God. And in his challenge against Moses and Aaron, the words that we've just spoken there, we hear him actually, he's echoing God's own words that were spoken at Sinai. 
Korah uses the same words God did at Sinai by claiming that all of the assembly of Israel was holy. And that's true. God even said that. Exodus 19, we hear. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So he, again, he's echoing God's words. Yeah, they're all holy. They're all set apart. But what Korah failed to grasp was that although all of Israel was called to be a kingdom of priests and they were called to be this holy set-apart nation, they were appointed to different responsibilities, different stations in how they would serve God. And being appointed different tasks, they were to respect each other's positions and the different types of authorities that God grants. And again, as for Korah, it was not as if he held no other authorities or unique responsibilities. Number 16, 8 through, 8 through 10 tells us. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it a small thing to you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the work of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to serve them, and that he has brought you near to himself? you and all your brethren, the sons of Levi, with you? And are you seeking the priesthood also? So Korah, not being satisfied with his own station and his own appointment, he challenges God's anointed prophet Moses and God's anointed priest Aaron. And what's the result of these challenges? We have to remember, Korah didn't begin by just walking straight up to Aaron and Moses either privately or publicly, but it starts with murmuring. It starts with false allegations. It starts with complaining in the camp and talking to people in private and in the side and so on. Because Korah doesn't come by himself. Ultimately, there are other people that join themselves to Korah. Korah's discontent, it first spreads to the tribe of Reuben. And interestingly enough, and you're going to have to take my, my word for it, if you go, go to Numbers and you see how the camp was arranged, because if you remember, God gave instructions on how the camp was to be arranged around the tabernacle. And if you look where the Kohathites, which is the, the clan of the Levites that Korah belonged to, if I remember right, they're on the south side of the tabernacle, and right next to them in the next ring are the Reubenites. So you can see, there was in that section, that corner of the camp, there was murmurings, there was talking behind the leadership. And then that spreads, and it continues to spread throughout it to the point where we now we get to see 250 other leaders from the sons of Israel join Korah in challenging the position and the authority that God had placed in Moses and in Aaron. These murmurings, these false allegations, they're mentioned in 16, 11 through 14, and then in verse 41. Therefore you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. And what is Aaron that you complain against him? And Moses sent to call Dathan and Avram, the sons of Elav, and they said, We will not come up. It is a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you should keep acting like a prince over us. Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. On the next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. 
Think of these allegations that are being levied against Moses and Aaron. First, there's this complaining that you took us out of Egypt, where, we, where our needs were taken care of. And you've brought us into this wilderness, and now we're stuck out here. We're actually, we just, because remember the parashah last week, we just went through the, the false report of the spies. We're out here now for 40 years. An entire generation is going to die off out here. And they murmur, and how does that murmuring and that gossiping and that backbiting, what does that manifest as? Well, they blame Moses for their situation, as though it was Moses' fault that they were in the wilderness for 40 years. Well, again, we just read, we know it's because the people listened to the false spies report and they rebelled against Moses and God's commandments. But yet they're blaming Moses for this. And then the verse 41 there about the next day about um, them saying to Moses and Aaron, you've killed the people of the Lord. This is the day after, this is being said the day after the earth had swallowed up Korah and Dathan and Abiram for their rebellion. Again, as if it was Moses' fault that that happened to them. This murmuring, these false allegations, these false charges against God's anointed, this is then followed up, as, we, as Addie summarized, with the death and the loss to Israel of those who challenged Moses' Moses's authority. Chapter 16, 28 through 33, and 47 through 49 tell us. And Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of my own will. If these men die naturally like all men, or if they are visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates a new thing, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all the belongings to them, and they go down alive into the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. Now it came to pass, as he finished speaking all these words, that the ground split apart underneath them, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, and all the men with Korah, with all their goods. So they and all those who were with them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed over them, and they perished from among the assembly. Then Aaron took it as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the assembly, and already the plague had be begun among the people. So he put in the incense and made atonement for the people, and he stood between the dead and the living. So the plague was stopped. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700, besides those who died in the Korah incident. Korah's rebellion resulted in contention and confusion throughout the entire camp. And it's the result, this contention, this confusion, it's the result, of, again, of individuals deciding to go against God's appointed order. It's not that there was anything special about Moses or Aaron as individual men, as men of their own merits. But rather, when they opposed Moses and they opposed Aaron, they were opposing their appointed positions. They were opposing what God had ordained among the Israelites. And actually, when you read throughout the books of Exodus and Numbers, and we read of the story of Israel's exodus, you see that oftentimes when contention runs through the camp of the Israelites, it's usually the result of men going against God's appointed leaders. Now this contention that we see in the wilderness experience, it's the same contention that was there 
in the first century that, again, we see Paul having to address in all of his letters. And it's the same contention that we see today among both in and among the different denominations and communities of believers that exist today. And much of the contention, regardless of which point in time I'm looking at, it reminds me of the confusion and the disarray that fell upon mankind after the Tower of Babel. To recall that story, let us hear Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar, and they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth. And they ceased building the city. Therefore, it is, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. There's a parallel between the men of the plain of Shinar and the people in today's assemblies, and that much of the contention and the confusion that exists in the body of believers today is because the people are focused too much rather than fulfilling the commandments of God and laboring to fulfill his commandments. Because remember, the men of Shinar here that build the tower, you read there, they talk about we want to build this tower so that we're, we don't spread across the whole earth. What you have to remember is in the previous chapter, God had commanded the men after the flood to go out and spread across the earth and to fill it again. So they weren't focused on God's commandments. And, and laboring to fulfill and said, we're going to build our tower. And just like that instance, too many believers today are focused, rather than laboring to fulfill God's commandments, they're focused on constructing towers. And what I mean by this is that many individuals are, to seek, are seeking to build a structure of their own design, of their own thoughts and imagination. And they're doing that for their own glory or their own perceived needs. They're doing this rather than serving as laborers in the construction that God has ordained by using the talents and the resources that God has provided to each of us to fill whatever appointed roles he has. As such, we now have thousands upon thousands of towers being constructed by individuals and by groups and communities. And because each is pursuing their own goals and their own needs, the sheep and the shepherds end up like sheep, just bleeding at each other. And there's just bleeding in the camp, there's bleeding in the assemblies, and there's just nothing but confusion. You know when I say bleat, I mean sheep, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Let me give you some examples of the bleeding we hear out there today. You have some church leaders of churches and denominations out there that talk about we need to meet the world where it is. That to go out and to preach repentance 
to preach the need for people to change and to turn from the paths that they're on, that, well, that doesn't, that's a losing message. That doesn't connect with a modern world. The world has changed, they will say. And maybe that message played well for centuries, but now we're, it, it, we're, the world is different. People are different, and therefore we have to change. There's a bleeding among some congregations and from some pulpits of saying that love, that, you know, yes, we're commanded to love, but then they will say love is simply tolerating and accepting people for who they are, even if those people continue in their sin. As I said in Second, um, chapter 2 of Second Peter, go read it, backs me up on this. When false teachers come in, when false leaders come in, they appeal to the lusts of people. And those lusts can be very different, could be different things for different people. But that's what they appeal to. And that's what you have in the bleeding. You have these that are saying, no, let the people continue to pursue their lusts. And lo- but love them, even though we may even say those lusts may be wrong, we love them and we don't ask them or expect them to change. We see bleeding from some pulpits talking about that America is becoming a sinful nation. Now, I'll agree with that. But then they say... We have to focus on a revival, and that should be the top priority of Christians because we got to save the country. It's not about saving the individuals. It's not about bringing those people to their salvation so that they become united with God through his Mashiach. But no, it's all about saving a country, about saving a nation. You have bleeding out there in some pulpits where they will teach that if you want to know someone's faith, Look at how much prosperity they have, or look at their health, as though those are the fruits of faith, those alone. You have bleeding in which people argue and debate endlessly about the end times, and when is it coming, and how will it occur, and, you know, all this focus on Daniel and Revelation and Matthew 24, and neglecting all the other scripture. Not to say that those scriptures aren't important. We need to be vigilant and aware. But when you get to the point where, and I've heard it said, if you don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, you're not saved. As though the interpretation of prophecy that no one truly understands, and we won't until it's fulfilled, would somehow determine our salvation or our standing with God. As I said, this is a particular problem in Messianic Judaism and the Hebrew Roots Movement. You hear from some people that will say, you know, if you don't use the right name for, for Yeshua, for Jesus, like if you're using Jesus, or they'll even go as far, some, and usually it's the ones who insist that it, you should say it as Yahshua. If you don't use, if you use Yeshua instead of Yahshua, if you don't use that true name, God's not going to listen or hear your prayers. As if, you know, the, the condition of your heart doesn't matter, it's your head knowledge and what language you speak. All of this is confusion, and it's as though we're not even speaking the same language. We, even if we were all speaking English, and these conversations were all occurring, occurring in English, we're speaking different languages because we're, we, we mean different things in the, all of these matters. And it's like we're not really talking to each other. Again, we're just bleeding, blah, 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 to each other. And worst of all of this is that because of that, there is no edification of the body and there's no edification of each other. And really we just see as, we are, as people, as communities are working to build towers at the same time, they're, wor- they're working to tear down everyone else's towers. And this is what is at the heart of James's warning 
against there being too many teachers. People don't catch that often. James says you have a problem if you have too many teachers. Some might think, well, wouldn't it be a blessing if all had the maturity and the, anoint, the anointing and the, and the blessing to be able to teach? And there's even, you know, you know, I have to admit, in the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, it talks about everyone, like they're not really, you don't need those teachers to say no to the Lord because everyone will just know it. But we're not there. The New Covenant, has, it's, it's been initiated, but it's not fulfilled yet. And therefore, James has this warning. James says in 3.1, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Now many understand this warning that teachers and other leaders are held to a higher accountability by God for their actions and their inactions, as well as they're held to a higher authority because of what they're teaching. And that's very true. They are. And that's part of what James is warning here. But when we read, continue to read the following verses, they are equally important in explaining this accountability that teachers have and why James is saying you don't want too many teachers and not all of you should be seeking to become teachers. James 3, 2 through 12 continues. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths so that they may obey us and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the image of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren... These things ought not to be. Does a spring set forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. The unruly tongue is part of James's warning to teachers. And why entering into such a role should only be taken with the utmost seriousness and graveness. Because of the authority that is vested in a teacher of a community of believers and the influence that they have on those other people, if their speech includes prideful boasts or if it includes curses or even other sins we could add, if it includes things like gossip and slandering and backbiting and all of that, then it can cause greater damage than when those same failings occur among those not in the teaching roles and not in the leadership roles. The damage that can be done by an unbridled tongue of a leader to individuals, to an assembly, and actually most importantly, to the name of God himself, it's exponentially greater because of where they sit and the authority that they've been placed into and what that represents. 
Thus, James's warning is that because the tongue cannot be tamed in every instance, he's coming right out and saying, every individual, it doesn't matter who you are, your tongue's going to get, get you eventually. Because we're still warring in that flesh and the spirit. And unfortunately, sometimes even the best of us is going to slip in the flesh, and the tongue's going to be the place where you're probably going to see that. And for that reason, he's saying to become a teacher, it's not a light thing. And it's not something everyone should be seeking to take upon themselves. And although it's not the only reason it occurs, too many Korahs, not enough Avrahams, is an, is, an, is an important aspect of why non-edifying and often destructive messages and conversations are occurring among believers. There's too many individuals trying to act as teachers of their communities. Or if they don't have a community, they go online and they want to be a teacher to who anybody will listen to them on social media. And this in turn has a multiplying effect of more towers being constructed, more bleeding occurring among the flock. Too many individuals, many who have been hurt or misled by these past leaders or by past authority of figures, they then, as more and more try to pop up, people try to put themselves in positions of authority, other people who are there listening, who are seeking, who want to learn, you know, they're just looking for someone to teach them, they become more distrustful. And they become eventually distrustful of all leadership positions. I said, this is an especially problematic issue in the Messianic movement and in the Hebrew Roots movement. Why? Why is it so problematic in our denomination or our movement? My movement's better than, a, uh, than a denom using the word denomination. Well, for many people who come to Messianic Judaism, they feel whatever led them there, whatever prompted them to start asking the questions that typically lead you here, they begin to feel like past church authorities, and I'm speaking mainly from those who come out of the church, not from the Jewish side, who accept Yeshua as the Messiah, but they come to feel like they were misled by those past church authorities about the Torah. And oftentimes, these people, when they begin to follow the Messianic way, they also become rejected by their former communities. And in some sense, instances, they even become rejected by their families. Thus, when they find people who will then give them attention because they're trying to follow this path of being a Torah-observant follower of the Mashiach, of Yeshua, well, if someone gives them attention, they begin to relish that attention. And this creates several effects. Oftentimes, they become ones who end up misleading because they're not actually mature enough in their faith yet to be, and they haven't been appointed by God to become someone to lead a flock or to lead a community. And they oftentimes, and I, I, I'm just speaking from experience and what I see out there, they end up following after foolish arguments. And they end up then teaching and repeating them. Uh, I'll give you a classic example. How many of you have heard, in, in Messianic Judaism, have heard, don't ever say the name Jesus? Because, and the reason is because it, they say it comes from the Greek word Zeus. And it's, it's actually a name after a false god. That is completely wrong. You cannot show that scripturally. You cannot show it um, if you understand how Greek and Hebrew work. You cannot demonstrate that. That is just a flat-out false teaching that's out there. If you believe that or you want to know why it's a false teaching, come talk to me after service, and I'll walk you through it. 
but it's out there. And you get lots of different teachings like this. What ends up happening then is that these people, they end up damaging others then when they're challenged. And there's a lot of different reasons why, but sometimes it's because, you know, when they're out there and they're teaching and, they're, and they get some people listening to them, it puffs them up. They like the attention that they get. They get. But all of a sudden, someone else comes along and challenges what they're teaching. That's like challenging their status. It's challenging their, um, you know, something that, that they're deriving pleasure and a, good, and a sense from. So they end up reacting very violently, and they end up damaging the others. And again, I'm not making this up. You go on a messianic message board, this is what you see playing out. Oftentimes, too, you see these individuals eventually go down a path where all of a sudden they begin to reject all authority. Like no one can teach them. They alone will teach themselves. And they will oftentimes will say, well, I don't answer to any authority except God. That's the only authority that I, ha that I have to answer to. Sometimes, I, and I've seen this with some women, their wives who will, when you, they're out there trying to teach, and when you challenge them, they will, they'll come back and say, you have no right to correct me. I'm only re the only authority I'm responsible to is my husband, and only my husband corrects me. And he allows me to do this, so you have no right to come against me. Well, if you have a false teaching, I'm going to come against you. But the reality is, is if your husband isn't checking you, somebody else has got to do it. And scripture's clear that this last stance especially, that I am only responsible to God and nobody else, that's not supported scripturally. God appoints authorities that you are responsible to listen to. It's the spirit of Korah that holds the belief that, well, we're all equally holy. And if you belong to God, you truly are saved. Yes, you are equal in that salvation. There's no doubt about that. But that doesn't mean we all have the same authority or the same responsibilities given to us by God. Instead, we see that God does appoint leaders. He appoints teachers and other people to specific roles in order to edify the body, to strengthen it, to protect it, to grow it. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 through 29 shows us this. Now you are the body of the Messiah, and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. After that, miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. All Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? And realize when Paul's asking that question at the end, those questions, you know, are all apostles or all prophets or all teachers, he's asking it rhetorically. It's obvious in the asking that the answer is no, that not everyone is appointed to these positions. We also have Paul say something similar in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 that tells us. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of the Messiah. And so we have all these different positions that God appoints people to. But not only do we see that God has specific people appointed to positions as teachers or as leaders, but he expects his people to be obedient onto those appointed people. And again, not because of some intrinsic natural merits or talents that the individuals have, 
but only he expects it because they occupy a position that God gave them. Hebrews 13, 17 makes our responsibility clear. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. We read in a similar message elsewhere in Paul's writings. We read the same message elsewhere in Paul's writings. We go to Romans 13. Oftentimes when we read 13, 1 through 5, we assume Paul is speaking about civil authorities, such as the Roman government of his time. However, it's likely Paul also had in mind, and perhaps maybe even only exclusively had in mind, the authorities that he's talking about are the authorities over the synagogue and over other forms of assembly of the believers. The verses read, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Like I said, it's often read as though it's talking about government officials, but... There is a very strong argument to make that he's actually talking, again, about the authority figures over the synagogue or over an assembly of believers. And the reason being is because in verse 3, the Greek word for ruler is archontes, which in the first century is what, for the Jews who were in the diaspora and lived in Greek living world, world, in in the Greek world, the leader of their synagogue was called, not a rabbi, it was called an archontes. So that's why it may be Paul's actually referring here to the leaders of the, of the assemblies. Now notably about Paul, though, as we think about him, not only did he teach about the importance of respecting and being obedient to those who are placed in positions of authority in the assembly, but he actually demonstrated it through his own actions. Because one, it would have been very easy for Paul to say this as, as though he's setting himself up as an authority that should never be challenged or questioned. But even if you think about who Paul was, this great Pharisee, educated well beyond any of the other disciples and pretty much beyond any Jew of that day, even though he was the apostle to the nations, it's a special appointment upon him to be the primary force and mover to take the good news to the Gentile nations. Even though we see at one time he rebukes Peter for driving a wedge between Jews and former Gentiles, We also see in Paul that he did yield to and he followed the authority of the other apostles on several occasions. We see it first when he came to Jerusalem after his own conversion. It's described in Acts 9, 26 through 30. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him. And now he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, 
and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. But they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. So when Paul starts arguing and, gets in, and starts causing contention in Jerusalem, the other disciples are like, you have to leave, you have to go, and we're going to send you out eventually to Tarsus. Paul, uh, he applies. He, he, he follows what they instruct. Again, we see it at the end of his third missionary journey when he, when he returns to Jerusalem for the celebration of Shavuot. He goes before James, and we see him. He follows under the authority of James. Acts 21, 18 through 24 tells us. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to, for, to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what, you, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. And although we won't read it this morning, we also have the example of the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, where we see Paul does voice his views. He enters into the debate regarding what do we do with these uncircumcised Gentile converts. But he's not one who makes a decision here. Instead, we see that it's Peter, and then ultimately it's James who makes the final decision of how do we accept these Gentile converts into the assembly and into the community of followers of Yeshua. Now all of this, I'm putting a lot of emphasis on the importance to be respectful and to be obedient onto the authority figures placed over us. Of course, this does have to be balanced. I want to do fully acknowledge that. It doesn't mean leaders in the assembly are not held to standards themselves and that we should blindly follow their teachings and their rulings regardless of whether or not they line up with scripture. After all, after all if we took obedience too far and we only regarded the title and the position and we, did, and we didn't really look at respect to the person themselves and whether, A, actually were they anointed by God for that position, or maybe, again, they were just appointed by man to that position. And if we aren't looking to see if they're living up to the standards that God sets for his leaders, well, the reality would be is every one of us today would still be Roman Catholic. Furthermore, as I've already stated several times this morning, because the leadership positions in the community can do such great damage if they're not God-centered and they're not spirit-led in their approach to the scriptures and in their teachings and their tending to the flock, they are responsible for their actions and their inactions that can injure the community in God's name. Thus, it's important that our leaders are held to the standards that are set in scripture. The leaders do need to follow what God has said through his apostles and through his prophets. 
Well, what are those standards? Well, Paul gives us a long list of standards that the leadership should follow. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 14 says, This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given too much wine, not greedy for money, holding the ministry of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested. Let, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in the Messiah Yeshua. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. And then we see a similar list of standards that the leadership is to be held in Titus 1, 5 through 9. For this reason I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dispensation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. And then finally, and as we think about what is the standard that we hold the leaders to, we see in the parable from Yeshua, from the Messiah, what is the attitude a leader should have in the sense that what he does is a ministry in the truest sense of the word. And what does it mean to minister? It actually means one who serves in the name of, an, uh, of another. They, a true leader that has been appointed over the flock, they recognize, I'm actually not, I'm in a, a position of authority, but I'm actually not the authority. I'm actually a servant for the authority that I serve. And we see this, in, this, in the parable that we'll read here, and we're going to conclude with, but from Yeshua. But it's that what this parable shows is that those who would seek to elevate their name or those who would seek rewards or just the, um, the satisfaction of being one who can stand up in front of people who, who, who are seeking their own gratification in their leadership position, that actually... If they have that attitude, they should never be anywhere near a position of authority. 
and they should be restricted from those positions. Because this is what Yeshua said about those who serve him and those who minister in him. Luke 17, 7 through 10, 17, 7 through 10 states. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper, and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk? And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did the things which were commanded of him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. And that, for the, uh, you know, like I said, most of this morning's teaching has been focused on the sheep. But for the shepherds, Yeshua talks about those who tend sheep. They don't come into the master's house after tending the master's sheep and think, sit down at the table and think, all right, now I get my reward. I get to dine with the master and eat with him and everything. No, they actually come in and they, they still serve the master. And then they don't worry about, you know, what they're given. They're simply content to say, I've done what my duty was to do. I need to go to the next slide. I don't see the, the books up. Oh, here it is. Sorry. <laughs> it's our duty to praise the master of all, to ascribe greatness to the author of creation. For he made us unlike the nations of the lands and has not placed us like the families of the earth. He has not made our portion like theirs and our lot like all their multitudes. And we bend the knee and bow and acknowledge our thanks before the king over kings, the holy one, blessed be he. He stretches out heaven, establishes earth's foundation, the seat of his glory is in the heavens above, and the presence of his power is in the most exalted heights. He is our God, there is none other. True is our king, there is nothing beside him. As it is written in his Torah, you shall know this day and take to your heart that the Lord, he is God. In the heavens above and on the earth below, there is none other. Amen. Let's stand together.